episode 408 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, Steptoe and Johnson, our clients, our family, our friends, our children, and really not even our pets, I'm afraid. Joining me for the News Roundup, Jane Bambauer, who teaches law at the University of Arizona, Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law at Georgetown uh, uh, Law School, uh, and who's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Maury Schenk, who's a London-based lawyer and technologist. And I'm Stuart Baker, practicing law in Washington, D.C., and host and chief provocateur for today's program. Jane, I, the Justice Department put out a rare policy statement, uh, a new policy statement, about when they would pursue people for hacking or computer fraud and abuse violations. It was not completely a surprise for people who listened to the Van Buren argument, but it was pretty detailed. So what'd they say? Yeah. So... They explained, well, first of all, consistent with Van Buren and, and the Ninth Circuit's high Q opinion, too. They explained, first of all, that if end users violate the terms of a contract for how a website's supposed to be used, well, then that's not going to be chargeable as a, you know, as, as a CFAA violation. So that's pretty consistent with what we've seen in courts. But they also went, went further and said that the DOJ should not charge white hat security researchers. So these are researchers who, you know, test or investigate and hope to correct for security flaws. And to do that, they are exceeding act, authorized access or they are, you know, they are yeah. um, accessing a computer. Right. So as long as the white the, the the hacker causes no harm to the public and and any information that they access is only used to promote future security and they don't like extort the company, <laughs> as long as all of those things are are true, prosecutors are are instructed not to charge. And so and where so do they uh, where, where where do you, where is this? good faith rule in the statute? Is it basically in the mens rea, the intent, or did they just sort of make it up? My understanding is that they're making it up, that mens rea, you know, knowledge is knowledge and having a good purpose. I mean, I mean, it. I, I wish that the statute were revised to match what the DOJ gui guidance is, because it would be nice, you know, one problem that white hat hackers still have is that nothing protects them from civil suit that a company that's embarrassed might bring. I mean, a company that's embarrassed hopefully wouldn't bring it that type of suit because that would just bring more embarrassment on them. But right. still, still, I, you know, my, it, it's not at all clear that the, that the DOJ memo is, is simply stating what the mens rea requirement is. I think they're rather aligning charging decisions. You know, they're using discretion to align charging decisions with the things that actually are harmful. Yeah. Uh, Which is so, better than nothing, but... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's no guarantee, you know, if you're indicted and you think it violates the policy, you really have no remedy except to call Maine Justice and say, this is wrong. You can't mount a legal defense but based on your good faith. I do agree with you that civil liability is still a risk and publicity is still a problem. But I, I had one client who did security research on a medical device and found all kinds of holes where hackers could have given you a heart attack. And the response of the company was to bring not a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act claim, but to bring a an old-fashioned libel claim, which you know, <laughs> I, I, it should not have worked because at the end of the day, truth is a defense, but it's a very expensive thing for a security researcher to live through. And so at the end of the day, you get settlements. And I was sort of disappointed there wasn't more bad publicity for bringing a claim like that, but it worked for them. I was kind of surprised. Uh, so I was also interested in the exceeding authorization where you do things that you're not supposed to do according to the terms of service. And they said... Just violating the terms of service by itself isn't acting without authorization unless you blow past, really, I guess this is kind of the gates up, gates down. There has to be some technical yeah. enforcement rule. If there's no technical yeah. enforcement mechanism, then you're not violating the rules unless, I mean, this is so weird, words don't make it a violation of the CFAA unless those words are in a cease and desist letter that goes to you and you actually read it. 
Oh, I so I I didn't catch that second part, but I so, so the 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 first part of what you said is, is my understanding too. That I mean, the memo explains they're looking for overcoming some sort of computational rather than contractual barrier to you know to an account or a part of a website. So I I didn't. So, yeah, so. here's what it said. It said okay. Um, it said first, if you go on a web website and you embellish your online dating profile, I thought this was you know I, the, you could hear the sighs of relief all across the country. That's not a violation yeah. of law. Uh, right. Or using a pseudonym on a social network site that prohibits them. Then it says, however, when authorizer, that is to say the owners of the site, later expressly revoke authorization, for example, through unambiguous written cease and desist communications that defendants receive and understand, the department will consider defendants from that point onward not to be authorized. So it's well. It, that is very interesting. So I missed that, and and that that runs in detention with the High Q case. Yeah, where because LinkedIn told High Q, you know, they did send the cease and desist order. So that part of the memo or the guidance is not consistent with where I think courts are going to go in terms of actually interpreting the CFAA statute itself. Yeah, so that's yeah. very interesting. You do wonder. You know, there, maybe there was some lobbying by uh, Microsoft on this, but it means that the ability to define a felony, which <laughs> you know, usually is sort of the government's doing, is entirely in the hands of big social media. And worse, in a way, they get to pick and choose who they're going to turn into felons because they could say, oh, it's okay. I like him. I'll let him scrape my site. And I don't like him. So I'm going to turn him into a felon by sending him the cease and desist letter and then going to the Justice Department and say, here's your case. It's not entirely a comfortable outcome. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. All right, Mark, FTC also had an announcement about its policy, and it was 5 nothing, which should probably tell us that it was less controversial than many of the things that we're going to hear from the FTC in the next year. What did they say? Yeah, I think you put your finger on the real giveaway. That 5-0 vote really suggested that they weren't doing much beyond reiterating current policy. So what they said, it was a statement. It wasn't a new rule. It was just a statement. And it had to do with how the FTC is going to enforce the uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act in the context of children's learning online. And it just repeated some of the material that's already been out there, their prohibitions against mandatory collection, their prohibitions on certain uses of uh, student data, their limitations on how long you can keep the information, can't keep it longer than necessary, and, and their security requirements. You've got to keep the information safe and secure. Now, I, I used to represent the EdTech companies when I ran the policy shop at the Software and Information Industry Association. Right. And, and they released a statement that's a pretty good summary of what the uh, FTC action means. And it opens up with, we applaud the FTC's action, which suggests that they don't feel terribly alarmed by what's happened. And they say that it's a reiteration of what's long been required by federal law and a multitude of state privacy laws. Uh, so they don't look as if there's anything new here, except maybe that the FTC is watching and will prioritize enforcement uh, of these principles. And that is news. Now, you, you got to remember that the, the, the COPPA law covers kids only up to the age of 13. The uh, older students are covered by other laws and by state laws. And the FTC is covering is reviewing its own couple laws and will probably get to a result in the next year or so. And Senator Ed Markey has a bill that would increase the age covered and he would explicitly ban student advertising. So I think this is, as he suggested by the 5-0 vote, it's just kicking the can down the road for any real change uh, in policy or enforcement. The companies that have been paying attention will not have to really change their practices or respond in any real new way. I always thought the, the, the problem with COPPA was it was a little hard for people to know for sure they were dealing with KIT. And that was that was always the the issue when you said, is COPPA a good law? But if you're in the education tech business, you kind of know you're dealing with fifth graders right. or sixth graders. And then most of these other requirements fall out pretty 
clearly. And I'm assuming that what happened here is that a lot of the companies found themselves doing education tech without actually having planned to do it, like Zoom, say. Uh, and yeah, they, well, they yeah, may have been pretty yeah. bad about compliance. Yeah, but there's a real difference uh, between the companies that are working with schools and have a contract with schools to provide educational services yeah. and companies that are just putting a website up and, and, and students go to, to use it. The student privacy laws around the country at the state level cover both, and the FTC's rule cover both, covers both as well. You know when you're you know, providing a kind of educational service that a kid might want. Yeah. It's not a secret that your service is aimed at, at that population. So it's not something where you can claim lack of knowledge. And for years, there's been you know discussions and publicity about this stuff. SIIA had a, a pledge of good behavior about seven or eight years ago. So it's pretty widely understood that you've got to be careful when you're dealing with student information. That's not a surprise, and it's not new. So FTC just got its third Democratic commissioner. In fact, I think this may have been the first thing he got to do was to sign on to this. And everybody has been assuming that as soon as that happens, Lena Khan will unroll a whole host of enthusiastic regulatory measures going after Silicon Valley, and it'll all be three three to two. Do you think we're going to see that soon? And what do you think are going to be the top priorities for the FTC? Well, two, I think. I think this will give them a third vote to pursue some of the antitrust cases that I think they've been waiting to bring. I can't tell you which ones it'll be, but I'm pretty sure they've got a few up their sleeves. But I think more important, uh, they're going to finish up their student uh, privacy making. And I think they're going to launch a much more ambitious general privacy rulemaking under the Magnuson Moss rulemaking authority they've got. It'll take them some time to do it because there are all sorts of procedural hurdles they'll have to go through. But it's pretty clear that they're going to try to use their unfairness and deception authority to impose broad privacy rules on the, all the companies under their jurisdiction. Congress could preempt this by putting some sort of national privacy law in place. And there's some discussions going on right now at the Senate Commerce Committee that people are, are a little bit worried about what might happen with privacy regulation if Senator Ted Cruz ever gets to run the Senate Commerce Committee. It'll be a graveyard for anything uh, that might be in that area. So there. There's an incentive for both sides to try to come up with a, a compromise. If the Congress does that, then probably the FTC won't bother to have its own rulemaking. But in the absence of that, I suspect they're going to press ahead with their own rulemaking, and they have the three votes that they need to do that now. Yeah. So I don't know if you followed this, but I, I noticed that a court of appeal just struck down the SEC's structure, which included having its own prosecutors and its own administrative law judges ruling on cases that then went to the commission, which sounds a lot like the FTC's structure. So there may be some constitutional separation of powers type objection to the FTC's structure. And if it becomes very ambitious, uh, lots of people are going to be incentivized to revive at that argument in the context. I, I think that you make a very good point that this is a legally risky challenge. But of course, that non-delegation doctrine revival is, is something that has been talked about you know, for a long time now. My informal account says that they, if it ever gets to the Supreme Court, they probably have five votes for rolling back the current you know, broad discretion that's given to agencies. So there's a legal risk there for, for agencies that go pretty far in this area. And I think they're smart enough to know that that's waiting for them, and they would be well advised to be a little bit cautious on how broadly they act. Well, the FTC is is, is among the most aggressive users of the uh, nice little business you got here, be a shame if something happened to it style of administrative lawmaking, where at the end of the day, they offer you a consent decree you cannot refuse. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if, if, if you do a rulemaking in this area, we'll see if they can defend this against the I mean, our friend Baron Zoka will probably be on the case right away and, and bring one of these campaigns against it that suggests it doesn't have the authority to do what it's doing. And they're going to have to be pretty careful that they build a legal record for what they're up to and explain clearly why what they're doing is well within the boundaries of the discretion that Congress gave to them. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's go abroad. Maury, you're in London, and the UK has produced more international law speeches about uh, cyberspace than anybody else, as far as I can tell. This is We just had a second attorney general holding forth on what international law means in the context of cyber conflict. I did not see a lot new in this. It felt like the last speech that was four years ago, just a different person giving it, but maybe I missed something. Well, I think it was similar. I think where it's kind of interesting is on the response options. So in terms of articulation of what's illegal in state-to-state cyber actions, what she said was pretty much the same as what Jeremy Wright said four years ago, in that if you violate the rule of non-intervention, then what you have done may be unlawful. But on response to actions, she was a lot more specific. She was clear that if there's an unlawful act, there's a right of response. She mentioned Russia and China specifically. And I thought most interestingly, she said, there are a wide range of effective response options available to impose a cost on states carrying out irresponsible or hostile cyber activity, regardless of whether the cyber activity constitutes an internationally unlawful act. So she was saying, well, we're going to look at whether the act is unlawful and we're going to retaliate on unlawful acts. But if you're hostile to, to us, maybe we could go after you, even if what you've done isn't unlawful. So there's an interesting, I suspect, under the radar debate here. She put it all on, you know, if you interfere, if you intervene in our affairs, if this is a principle of non-intervention and hostile non violations of that justify retortion or, you know, basically a a tax back. And that she went out of her way to say, there's something below that, which is an invasion or an intrusion on our sovereignty. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we get to attack you. And my sense of why that odd statement was made is that anytime you're tracking a cyber actor, you're going to end up following that cyber actor back through a bunch of different computers. And some of them are going to be in Thailand or France or Germany or Mexico. And if you take the view that hacking into computers in any country is a violation of their sovereignty that entitles, that is unlawful under international law, then Defending yourself means that you've violated the sovereignty of Mexico and France and Thailand. And uh, my sense is anybody who actually plays in the, especially in the defending forward game, is already up in people's computers in third countries all over the world. And nobody who does that wants to be in a position of saying, oh, yeah, I'm violating international law and I could probably be sanctioned for it. Yeah, I think that's probably a big piece of it. And just trying, I mean, cyberspace is less uh, borderless than it used to be, but there is this idea that we operate in a borderless cyberspace. And, you know, Vladimir Putin, now that his yacht's been seized in Italy, maybe it's tough for him to buy stuff. And he's asking the FSB to buy stuff on Amazon.uk or co.uk. <laughs> Right. And, you know, that I don't think would be a cy- cyber attack. That would be okay for the UK, probably. So it may just be saying it actually has to be something that's hostile in some fashion, even if not unlawful, but hostile in order to justify a response. And the reason the UK keeps giving these speeches, the, you know, the attorney general, I assume is because um, not violating international law is a bigger deal in the UK than it is in the US. It certainly is. And I mean, the UK doesn't have a written constitution, but the UK is very big about the concept of saying it does have a constitution. So how do we have a constitution? Well, we have a constitution here by virtue of saying what it is. And of course, it's more flexible because you can just say what it is rather than have it written down. But I I think the UK, it's just the UK being serious about the rule of law as well. Yeah. Okay, this is beating a dead horse, perhaps, but Mark, the Disinformation Governance Board that DHS stood up is now no more, although the reverberations continue. Nina Jankowicz has resigned. She was going to be the head of it, maybe was the head for a week or two. What did we learn from all this, apart from that Taylor Lawrence is 
just, you know, going to write the same story. Oh, poor me. People say mean things on the internet about me. Story for the next 20 years. Yeah, I, I think you're right. To some degree, this is beating a dead horse. But, you know, my take on this has always been that if you like the total information awareness program from the Bush administration, you would have loved the disinformation governance board. I'm just as happy seeing it. But I do think the Washington Post reaction illustrates a larger point, which is it's not such a terribly good idea to have government focus on disinformation in this way. Yeah. I mean, the, the the story, you know, called the right-wing media criticisms of Jankowitz and the board, quote, a textbook disinformation campaign. And, and it quotes an anonymous Hill staffer saying that the board's purpose was to come up with strategies for the department to counter this type of information campaign. Now, let's be clear, you know, that what went on with right-wing media and Republicans was a pretty routine attempt by media companies and activists to take advantage of a vulnerability that was presented by their political opponents. Now, the idea that, that DHS should come up with strategies to counter media campaigns against the political power party in power, that's pretty dangerous stuff. Yeah. And I, I think you saw some far-sighted progressives wondering right away, what would a DeSantis administration do with such a disinformation board? He would almost certainly use it uh, against Democrats and left-leaning media. So I, I do think that's a larger piece of information that we, we need to put away and think about. To my mind, this whole incident really discredited the idea of disinformation as a useful category to talk about online media manipulation. I've, I've decided to go back and scrub the book I'm writing and get that word out of it. It really has a technical use. You know, it's intentional lies by agents of a foreign power that are... Right, but it, it's already, it's, 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 it's totally morphed into the, the fake news. Uh, it, it's just fake news. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I think it really has gone the way of fake news. The other thing to, to notice is that DHS has got some working groups uh, that are focusing already on disinformation and malinformation and so on. And the, the Post reports that they've been suspended. But I think it'd be worthwhile to keep an eye, for the press to keep an eye on what these uh, working groups are up to. We all know about the UK and Israeli government programs to refer social media posts and accounts to companies for violation of their content policies. And, you know, some civil libertarians are worried about that, I think properly so. But in any case, these programs should be transparent on, on, on both the government and the company side. There should be regular reports on what's referred and and what the companies do with them. The EU sort of endorsed this kind of referral program in its terrorist directive, but it made clear that those programs have to operate in a transparent manner and require transparency reports. If that's going on in DHS, I have no idea if it is. We should know more about it. So, you know... There have always been government programs to counter what they think of as misinformation, whether it's the nutrition uh, pyramid or DHS has long had a program. They buy ads in Central America to contradict what the coyotes are telling people about how easy it is to get across the border. Actually, the coyotes may be righter than the ads, but they certainly have tried to fight what they considered misinformation about U.S policy uh, toward immigrants. And I don't know that anybody is all that upset about ads that are running in uh, Central America about that. I do remember CISA in DHS, the computer security folks, talking about efforts to divide Americans. And they had a whole shtick about a campaign to persuade Americans to become more divided over whether uh, pineapple was a proper pizza topping or not. And that was pretty funny and a pretty good way of pointing out that sometimes, you know, the conflict that people are trying to spur might be a little more serious. Those are the kinds of programs that that I think DHS is talking about. They're not very scary, but I think they could have turned into more as you start to bring it all together and say, we've got a whole disinformation campaign and we're going to root it out. Seeing how easy it is to, to charge people with fake news or disinformation made people very nervous about how that tool would be used by the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I do think th 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 there are these internet referral units that go 
you know, way beyond just sort of trying to counter foreign misinformation in other countries. And as I say, I don't know if they're operating here in the United States, but they are operating in other countries. I'd be surprised if one isn't operating in Ukraine. And they're an attempt to throw government resources uh, at the, the content moderation efforts of social media companies. And you know, as I say, some people have concerns about them. My concern is that we should know about them if they're happening. Yeah. If they are above board and they are useful, great, let's know about it. I think I subscribe to a letter that the EU pays for, a regular newsletter exposing what they consider to be foreign disinformation, mostly Russian. And, you know, like with any government effort to do that, it's just mostly boring. So I'm not, I, I question the effectiveness of the tool, but it also raises the question, well, really, at what point do you say, well, this is foreign disinformation, or this is something that I think is wrong that a lot of people in my uh, political subdivision believe? Yeah, I think you've got to be really careful about saying, so-and-so says the same thing as Russian agents do, therefore, he's a, an agent of a foreign power. That, that kind of red baiting has a nasty history in the first Cold War. Uh, and I think it's a danger in the new one that we've got, and we should try to keep away from it if we can. Yeah. All right. Well, I, you know, I, I don't usually cite The Intercept because they're mostly committed left-wing agitators. But they wrote, but I, I, every once in a while, they write a story in which they want me to be shocked, and I end up saying, "That's great." We should have more of that. Jane, they did that about uh, Chicago police using uh, fake social media identities that I thought was a, was a great story. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So I wanted to take on the story in part because I kind of agree with you, but I'm going to try to push on where I know your instincts are coming from. Yeah, so, so The Intercept did a sort of expose type of piece on SOMEX task forces. So these are social media exploitation task forces. The FBI has one and they work with local law enforcement task forces that usually use that same acronym. And this piece focused on Chicago Police Department's SOMEX force. So what the FBI's SOMEX task force does is provide fake but convincing looking social media accounts that oftentimes actually their accounts across multiple platforms. So it seems more real and you know believable. By the way, this may have been because other police departments that have tried doing this sort of thing haven't done a very good job. Like I guess Memphis Police Department kept using Bob Smith <laughs> as a fake account that went everywhere. So, you know, I think the FBI probably improved on that. And, and, and the social media companies uh, take them down pretty regularly. They, 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 try, they say, yeah. you can't do that. We're going to treat well, you just like the... the like like the Russians. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going back to the, you know, end user contract and CFAA violation stuff. Yes, this, this, these accounts do violate the terms of Facebook and the other social media services. But in any case, if they look real enough, then they look real. And they sometimes, by the way, these task forces also take over real accounts of informants. And so that's an even sort of better method of kind of infiltrating a possible criminal ring. And then the other things that they do are kind of more public relations facing. So they'll, well, they'll provide alerts based on what they see on social media about upcoming events. And they provide kind of videos that look that look bad for protesters or good for the police or some, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I think the intercept takes issue with that. So the example they gave was a Chicago police officer that was on one of these units who was very upset by some tweets he saw of a protester during the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020, who was wearing a Joker mask and was sort of proudly torching uh, a squad car. And so he really wanted to figure out who this person was. Although he was wearing a mask, he had a very distinctive neck tattoo. So, you know, he needed a bigger mask, I guess. <laughs> um, and this police officer <laughs> wound up using, you know, it, it's not clear exactly what he did, but he used these, I don't know, fake accounts or something. He, he used the resources that the FBI provided in order to figure out who this was. And then sure enough, the, the Joker mask guy was arrested. So, okay, so the other side, I, I, so I know where you're coming from because kind of critique I think it's a little thin. On one hand, they seem to resist the idea of law enforcement using these techniques at all. So they kind of tap into resentment of undercover agents more generally and sort of suggest, look, look, now it's easier than ever to have these undercover agents sort of 
all over the place. And that's bad. I don't, you know, I don't think undercover agents are are bad in the first place. In fact, a lot of times that's, you know, the only way to really get at certain types of crime. And then also, I just also disagree that this is exactly the same as, you know, on of exactly the same as meat space undercover work, because online public kind of groups are low intimacy. So I just think that also the privacy kind of invasion is, is lower with these types of techniques. But the, the second thing that the Intercept article gets at is that even if law enforcement, even if these tools are good in, for some purposes, law enforcement might not be using them wisely. So so they complained, the Intercept complained that they seemed to focus on this this guy in the Joker mask because he was making such a spectacle. I think that makes sense. I mean, if someone is getting a lot of public credit and possibly copycat yeah. you know, attention, then that's probably actually the, the sort of criminal they should go after first. But where I am sympathetic to the reporting is that is, you know, the extent to which this tool is used unevenly to go after crimes that maybe are not that serious and that are perpetrated against the police and are not used as aggressively for crimes of violence or even, you know, even just sticking with the protests for a second. Like, I think burning up a, a private person's business should be more disturbing and should get more police sort of eyes on the crime than burning one police vehicle, right? So I, I guess I'm sympathetic to the critique that even if we adopt these tools, the amount of discretion that's at the disposal of the police should be something that we, you know, monitor, try to curb, try to direct in the right direction, that sort of thing. What do you think, Stuart? Yeah, I'm skeptical. I think, well, first, and I've been on the receiving end of police tribalism, but it's very real. The yeah. first thing they have to do is protect themselves and their authority, because otherwise they lose control of a lot of circumstances that they otherwise would control. So I'm not surprised that they think that the worst thing you can do is defy the the cops and destroy their symbols of power. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't also pursue people that they can identify burning other buildings. All of that is something that should be pursued. But I'm struck by the fact that people think that they ought to be able to post stuff on social media for lots of people to read and the police can't see it. And and that seems to be the view of not just the Intercept, but all of the social media companies that say, oh, you can't use a fake account. Oh, you, that's, that's just unacceptable. How are you supposed to find people who are flagrantly advertising their violations of law? Unless, like unless, for example, yes, for, for I, example, I, I, someone it, who's about to commit a mass shooting in Buffalo, for example. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. A, a, apparently, if the new, governor of New York is mad at you, then uh, it all all holds are un, unbarred. But yeah, it, it seems to me that there's nothing wrong with the police investigating things that are in public or quasi public on social media and the social media platforms. I understand they have a problem figuring out when they should allow it and when they shouldn't, but they should not be campaigning against that stuff. And, and the Intercept, well, this is just the Intercept. Uh, uh, but what about the, the the New York Attorney General has said, yeah, I'm going after Twitch and Discord and all those guys for not having taken this live stream down. They got it down in two minutes. I thought that was pretty impressive, but apparently not good enough. Well, yeah, I mean, the implication is that they should have predicted that this guy at this time was about to 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 go out and execute his plans and I don't know what the you know call it it's not actually clear I if you read what the both the governor and the attorney general have said it's so aggravatingly vague that it's you know it's pretty clear that this is just they're 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 just responding reacting to a public catastrophe and not in a thoughtful way so so the attorney general Letitia James she opened an investigation against all the companies they said um, and, and the, the, the quote that got repeated a lot in the press is that the, the fact that an individual can post detailed plans to commit such an act of hate without consequence and then stream it for the world to see is bone chilling and unfathomable. But none of the public statements have explained what they expected these companies to do in the alternative. So, so maybe this is just it, the, the New York attorney general and the governor saying, I'm going to get out in front and blame social media before somebody blames me. I guess so. But I, I mean, the thought that we might want these companies to try to predict 
and then what alert the police about any possible threat. I mean, it just really it runs in exactly the opposite direction of the story we were just describing by the intercept, right? So, yeah. so you know, first of all, why should the platforms rather than the police or the government be doing the scanning work? If we really think that this kind of monitoring should be done, isn't this better, you know, wouldn't we then want the law, law enforcement to be more embedded on these social media platforms? But in any case, it's just absurd to think that with the amount of content that's uploaded, you know, this was, I, I, I get that it was technically public, that, that these posts were technically public, but only like 20 something people saw it. You know, it's right. it's not really public. It's public the way my Twitter feed is public, which is, you know, no one <laughs> sees it, right? So, so, you know, unless we expect these platforms to do a lot of purging and a lot more, you know, heavy handed micromanagement of of speech, and also, I guess, more reporting, you know, required, mandatory reporting to police or something, this, this is going to go nowhere. Or it better go nowhere. <laughs> yeah, so so one would hope. But the idea that uh, you can blame the social media uh, companies for insufficient censorship is just abroad in the Democratic Party, I'm afraid. Uh, and and we're just going to have to laugh at it until it goes away. Why why stop at social media? I mean, aren't the ISPs? You know, why don't they scan for possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Threats, uh, and, you know? and, or telephone companies? Why aren't they scanning? <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let, let me jump in a little bit on, on the side of the attorney general, not necessarily that she's got a case, but um, this did happen before. I mean, the Christchurch incident from several years ago, and all the companies got together and signed a statement that said, we're going to do better. This won't happen again. And Amazon signed it. And other companies have put in place policies that say, you know, we won't, as a general matter, stop people from uh, live streaming. But if we have some indication that this guy's a problem, we're, you know, we found him doing other stuff before that's a, a violation of terms and service, but we won't let him do it. Uh, and other companies say things like, we don't allow live streaming unless a person has authenticated himself and unless the person has more than 50 followers. So uh, the idea is you, you try to stop people from just popping onto the internet without having an account before. And so there are all these measures that other companies have taken and one of the reasons that uh, this guy went to Twitch, apparently, was because they hadn't taken those steps. Uh, and uh, so I, there is something going on here where, you know, it's not a crazy idea to look carefully at people who might be doing something pretty nasty on the Internet. And other companies have taken steps to do that. Whether Twitch is legally liable is a whole different question. I suspect not. There's no, almost nothing that the attorney general can get the company on. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't be doing something in a little bit more proactive well, way. Maybe, but to live up to the commitment that they already made under the Christchurch commitment. But Twitch is nothing if not a live streaming network, right? That's what they do. And if you started to say you have to have fifty followers before you can live stream, they wouldn't have anybody who starts out there anymore. You know, I'm willing to bet that half their channels are people live streaming stuff for their friends. You know, the, the six buddies who want to see whether they can actually break through to level 42. So I'm not sure that that system would have worked. And I'm not sure Twitch is a place where you expect people to post their political manifestos. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, so I'm... Well, and even if that precaution... So yeah, so I think Stuart's suggesting that precaution, it, it just might be too costly for certain business models, certain platforms. But also, I just, I think at some point, you know, the 50 followers rule will still not prevent, you know, it, that will still not lead to zero incidents. So I get really frustrated by this like innumeracy problem where the fact that there is an incident mean, you know, it gets interpreted as that must mean that there was an unreasonable um, amount of precaution. Yeah, but look, I know we can't prevent all of the stuff, but that doesn't mean we should say, I guess we can't prevent all of the stuff. So let's do exactly. There's no way we can be 100% effective. So something that's 90% effective is not worth doing. I don't know. What, what are I, we I trying to stop here? But really, what are we trying to stop here? I mean, it was a loathsome two minutes of video. I didn't watch it, but I have a, a feel for, for what happened. It was pretty bad. But do we think that those two minutes are going to inspire a lot of people to do this? I just, I'm, I'm, I, that wouldn't have been inspired if it had been just a manifesto and then a story. I, I, I wonder if we're blaming the video and trying to uh, stop the video when it's really, we're just looking for a way to, to signal our loathing for the act. Yeah, but that's an argument for leaving it up and so we can all look at it. I mean, 
Look, many of these guys are motivated by the idea that they can commit these horrible acts of violence. And that it'll make a and difference let somehow. And the world know about it. Yeah. And that's why they do it. Well, so maybe think, that's well, why they so, do it. So, I mean, then we shouldn't be reporting on it yeah. then. Right. Maybe we should well, be blaming the, the New York it, Times. Maybe we should we should blame we should blame the New York governor for ordaining to give a, a talk on it. You know, this doesn't feel like we have an idea what we're trying to do by uh, toxifying the failure to stop the distribution of this stuff. I think that's turning it into something that's maybe more important than it would be if we just spent less time talking about it. So let's stop talking about it, then we'll solve that problem. That sounds good. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, um, uh, Maury, the game is over, according to a Google uh, DeepMind researcher, saying that they've developed general artificial intelligence, an artificial intelligence engine that actually can do a whole bunch of different tasks, from recognizing pictures to stacking cubes, uh, a whole bunch of you know hard things to learn. And, and it, this system can handle all of them, maybe not superbly, but still, the fact that you can do all of them is a big change. I did not understand how they got there, and I didn't understand what we should be expecting from this development in the future. Did you have a better grasp of what they were telling us with this announcement? Yeah, I do. I think it's pretty technical, but let me try to break it down. I think there are two key points here. The first point is the technical accomplishment. So, you know, to say it can do a whole bunch of tasks isn't itself that interesting. I mean, I can sell you a set of books called the encyclopedia that can tell you about a lot of different things. And you can do the same with a neural network, that you can have some cue that says, oh, you're solving this task, therefore figure it out this way and train it on a whole lot of different tasks and just give it the cue. That's not difficult. What is remarkable about this, though, is they figured out a way of tokenizing all kinds of different tasks from language tasks to block moving tasks and putting it in a network and then having that network be able to look at brand new things that it wasn't trained on and with and looking at what would might be called few shot learning looking at only a few examples and based upon the approach it had taken from a bunch of other tasks to generalize to this new task and that's interesting gato the deep mind network seems to have made real progress on that. And, and so that's a technical advance. Okay, so what does it mean the, to tokenize uh, the task uh, without uh, going too deep? Uh, that sounds like what is among the advances they've achieved here. Well, tokenization is not a new concept. I mean, most of these networks, so even when you're processing language, you turn words into, you know, running gets tokenized to run somehow. To, or something like that. Stuart Baker probably stays as Stuart Baker or is done as unrecognized, unknown, although you're pretty well known. Yeah, probably, I, I, I hesitate to, to think of what, what I would be summed up as. Uh, <laughs> but I, so it's, it's a kind of summation and abstraction, uh, it sounds like. You're, you're saying, yes. what's the gist of this task? And, and I'm going to do it. And then it can go out and look at new tasks, watch somebody doing it, and reduce those to a gist that it can then try to imitate. Is that fair? Yeah, you'd have to build a tokenizer for the new task. And this network that uh, can interpret a series of tokens could say, oh, the tokens for playing the guitar look like the tokens for singing an aria or something like that, or reading a book or, or something. And it, it's showing that there is some commonality, which, which leads you to what I think is the second interesting point, which is, you know, is the game over, as Nando de Freitas says. And I think... That one is a really hard question to answer. I think that's an overstatement to say the game is over. It depends whether you believe that human intelligence can be broken down into this kind of very sophisticated memorization of patterns. Some people like Gary Marcus is probably the most visible, or Noam Chomsky for that, really say that's not the case. Human intelligence is pattern recognition is somehow more sophisticated. People like Nando de Freitas or Jan LeCun or Jeff Hinton believe that this pattern recognition, which gets called like uh, uh, the Google researcher who got fired, Timnit Gebru, called it a stochastic parrot. 
you know, a, a random parroting back of just very sophisticated memorization. Which end of the spectrum is it? It's too soon to tell. I, I think that the game is not over, but this is an important advance. And how much intelligence is going to uh, be based upon this kind of me mechanistic network versus rule-based um, analysis is, is hard. My, my bets are that it's going to require some rule-based analysis as well, but um, the future time will tell. Yeah, but, it, you know, look, it, it, we all have rules for learning by example, right? That would, would say, try to figure out what this person is doing that actually seems to be making a difference as opposed to what this person, trying to figure out all the things the person is doing and imitating it all. So uh, there, the idea of just using rules or, or inventing new rules, having an ability to invent new rules from watching something that you're trying to turn into a new task strikes me as getting closer to the kind of thing that human beings do. And if you can tokenize the process of learning by example, you're a long way down the road toward doing an awful lot of things that we did not think machines could do 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, that's right. And that's why Nando de Freitas says we just got to scale it up, game over. I'm not sure, but but who knows? It, it's really interesting. And certainly deep learning has done much, much more than we thought it could do 10 years ago. Yeah. And look, if the question is, is Noam Chomsky right or wrong? I'll go with wrong every time. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is the most anticipated nothing burger that I think we're likely to see, at least in June of this year. The Supreme Court has been asked to overturn the stay that it put on a kind of not very impressive district court injunction against the Texas law that imposes a host of anti-censorship and transparency obligations on social media. And I, there's like a dozen amicus briefs filed at the Supreme Court to get them to stay. And I just, Mark, I don't see any real prospect that the Supreme Court is going to want to jump in before there's even been a Court of Appeals decision and stay it. Well, we'll see. Alito's looking at it right now. And, you know, one of the things that we'll have to wait and see is whether he jumps in with, with both feet or whether he turns it over to the rest of the Supreme Court or, or whatever. But Texas, you know, they, they had an interesting brief arguing on the merits, and they said that social media companies are, are common carriers, quote, the 21st century descendants of telegraph and telephone companies, that is their traditional common carriers. But I, I, I think that really misunderstands their own law. So um, I was interested in that. They, they, the law does say they're common carriers. I didn't know whether that was a metaphor or whether they really meant it, but it, I think it is true that you can declare somebody to be a common carrier. And they, they might say, wait, I thought I was just in business. And they say, no, no, as of now, by virtue of our new state law, you are a common carrier. The uh, railroads didn't used to be common carriers, and then they were. So uh, is it as simple as Texas saying, well, we've decided to make you a common carrier? Well, look, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that the social media companies are somewhere between Sort of regular common carriers, and and newspapers who select their own editorial material. Right. Uh, I mean, they don't generate their own stuff, so they rely on users to generate stuff, and so they but they organize it and and moderate it, and do recommendations on it. So they they've got elements of common carriage. They're holding themselves out for the public to use, and they've got elements of editorial discretion like newspapers. So they're somewhere. In, and the Texas law actually treats them that way. It, yeah. it doesn't really impose a common carrier requirement. It says you can't engage in viewpoint discrimination, but it explicitly allows them to engage in legitimate content moderation. So it is not a common carrier uh, it's not a it's not a pure gotta... common carrier. I agree. Isn't this this you know what this feels like after after listening to Silicon Valley campaign for net neutrality to impose common carrier obligations on the ISPs? Uh, aren't they just getting back what they were trying to impose on the ISPs, which is uh, yeah, sure, we're going to just treat you as though you're kind of a common carrier and impose a bunch of obligations to ensure that you don't discriminate among the people who are your customers. 
Yeah, but it, it doesn't ban all discrimination. I mean, a common carriage requirement would say, if it's legal speech, you have to carry it. And that's what they did to the ISPs under net neutrality. If it was legal speech, you have to carry it. That's not what the Texas law says. It says there's a line between permitted content moderation and prohibited viewpoint discrimination. And you've got to stay on the side of staying away from viewpoint discrimination. Now, the problem with the law from a First Amendment point of view is that it's unconstitutionally vague. No one really knows where that line is. I mean, some things would fall clearly on one side of it. I think, frankly, the video from the Buffalo shooter would fall on the side of legitimate content moderation. It, it seems pretty clear to me that any policy against graphic or excessive violence would justify removing that yeah. that video. And that's, it's hard that's to think that that's a, true. That, yes. it's, it, it's hard to think that that rule is aimed at a viewpoint. Now, the shooter's racist justification, though, would probably count as a viewpoint, and the law, the Texas law, might very well require the social media companies to carry that. As the Supreme Court has said several times, racism is a point of view and you can't censor it if you're a government uh, operation. So I do think that the Texas law could be held constitutional with respect to its transparency obligations. And, and, and the Knight First Amendment Foundation filed a very thoughtful amicus brief in that area saying that it should be evaluated, those provisions should be evaluated under sort of commercial speech doctrine, which is a much lower standard. Let me, let me stop you on that because I, 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 I agree with you that that was a better approach. And that is why I think the district court uh, injunction, which just kind of gave the back of its hand to all the transparency said stuff and just said, oh, yeah, but it's all it's all tied up together to hell with it. Even though there's a really elaborate severability provision, it just said, yeah, you know, I got to wrap this up in the next uh, two lines, so I'm going to ignore all that. So it's not at all surprising that a court of appeals confronted with such a crappy opinion would say, well, uh, you know, we're not going to allow that to stay in place, and so we're going to stay the injunction. I've never quite understood why that such a bad opinion was written, but I don't know how you justify leaving it in place, given things like the, the Knight Foundation's position. Yeah, no, actually, you know, it's worth remembering that this ideal that the Texas law has of viewpoint neutrality, it's pretty important to remember that that's not silly. I mean, Facebook and Twitter don't defend themselves against charges of bias by saying, oh, yeah, I am biased. I'm proud of it. Right. Right. And the progressives really might want to rethink their commitment to social media discretion in light of, you know, say, Elon Musk. And, and what would happen if Murdoch were to acquire Twitter and program its stuff to mirror the editorial policies of Fox News? I think our progressive friends would feel a little bit discombobulated by that. So this idea of viewpoint neutrality is not a crazy idea. The problem is we don't know how to put it in law and you know we don't even know how to describe what it is at this point. What is neutrality? What is diversity? Is it equal salience, equal visibility, equal prevalence, disproportionate prevalence? How do you measure these things? So here's a, so a, it, I, a, I agree that that's hard. The reason I don't think that you just say, oh, vagueness uh, and, and get rid of it is it is attempting to walk a line between two sets of First Amendment rights that are both really important. There are the rights of the people who own the, the, the network and want to express views. And then there are the rights of all of the users who want who thought they had an opportunity to talk to their friends and family and who now are discovering that they, they can talk to their friends and family only if they say things that are approved by the network owner. And that's not an acceptable outcome for people who believe in freedom of speech, even if it might be legal under the First Amendment. And so if you're trying to say both of those folks have legitimate interests here, saying, well, viewpoint discrimination is what we're really worried about, and that's what we're going to prohibit, is not a bad place, but it is a relatively slippery place to stand. Yeah, I, I think you're right that this ideal of information diversity is something that responds more to the needs of the users rather than the interests of the platforms. And, and it, it's not something that we're strangers to. The Supreme Court decisions have upheld that time and time again. And as part of Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, 
I think it's enormously attractive. But the problem is we don't know how to define that in practical enough terms to make it enforceable as a matter of law. I think if you had a congressional committee to study this idea of viewpoint diversity in social media, that wouldn't be a bad idea. But I think in the meantime, the court should narrowly rule that this version of viewpoint neutrality in, in the Texas bill, it's just not ready for prime time. So I'm going to refer those investigators to an expert witness, an OnlyFans sex, she sells, I don't know, sex performances. And she also had an Instagram account, which kind of induced people to go to her OnlyFans page, uh, and it was taken down. And she protested in all the usual ways, and none of those worked until she started sleeping with Instagram employees and getting them to, ref to, to go to the folks who took it down and say, hey, could you take another look at that? And uh, she, she says, well, the first guy I hooked up with put in an internal review, and he said, well, it's sexual solicitation, and he appealed it, and there doesn't seem to be any uniformity in decision-making. If an employee doesn't like your face or doesn't care or is too lazy to review your case, they just close it and stick to their decision. But I just kept sleeping with people until I found somebody who could uh, make it happen. I guess I'm not at all surprised, but it does raise questions. If you are worried about bias and decision making, the possibility that all the employees of these social media companies can put in their two cents saying, hey, take another look at this thing. I think that's wrong. Or saying, why did you take that down? You should never have done that. And there's just this kind of mosh pit of decision-making that produces results. I, it's not a surprise that everyone would think that there's bias in the decision-making. And I, I really look forward to the transparency about how many people and which ones you have to sleep with. And this may explain all of the problems I've had with Facebook. And, you know, I'll do my duty if I have to go through alternative dispute resolution to get to the bottom of this. Anyway, so it is a hilarious article and kind of surprisingly insightful about uh, what actually happens in content moderation uh, inside some of these companies. Or maybe she just made it all up. I don't know. All right. So, speaking of making it all up, Tesla keeps having deadly vehicle accidents, and they're being investigated again, not surprisingly, by traffic safety regulators. And change, does this account for uh, Elon Musk's announcement on Twitter that he's going to hire really mean lawyers and there will be blood? Or is he talking about something else that he wants to fight people in court over? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this is just a part of a big package of negative press uh, that's being sent at Elon Musk's way, I'd say. But, you know, I object. Actually, you, you said it's not surprising that NHTSA is investigating. If you're saying it's not surprising in the kind of cynical way, then okay, sure. But it should be surprising to us because, yes, there have been Tesla crashes. There have been about 30 so far, and some of them have had fatalities. But it is still outperforming human drivers by um, by tons. So let me give you some data just to, to back this up. So so with autopilot features on, Tesla's crash ha have one crash for every 4.4 million miles driven. Okay, uh -huh. so keep 4.4, that's the baseline. Okay. So if the autopilot is off, but the active safety features are on on a Tesla, there's one crash for every 2 million miles driven. So autopilot is better than the safety features with human, right? Uh -huh. If both of those features are off, Tesla drivers are a little different from normal drivers. They're a little safer. And so there's one crash per 1 million, 1.2 million miles. The NHTSA average across all cars is one crash for every 0.5 million miles. So Tesla with its autopilot on today, assuming that there's no improvement in safety, is still like, you know, nine times safer than a typical car and driver. So let me push so you on that. Is... I, 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 I get it. And, and it, it, it has a kind of appeal. But the fact is... Thank that... you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that, I think that argument is on the spectrum for sure. I, I, it, it, and the reason I say that, and maybe this is me being you know uh, emotional, some of the accidents are sort of appalling to think about because they are so obviously things that 
wouldn't have happened if somebody was driving and if they had been paying attention. You know, it sounds like it, it didn't see something and it drove straight into the abutment. Or the, the yeah, car right. that, that yeah. insisted on trying to get off on an exit time and again on 101. And finally, the guy uh, wasn't paying attention and it just drove him into an abutment. And so it's not that that couldn't happen and wouldn't happen with somebody who wasn't paying attention, but it makes you think, well, surely we should know about these things because they sound so fixable. And so I I, well, I, I, I do so think they you think all of these things. Yeah, I mean, if you think the market won't fix it, then by all means, let's have an investigation. But, you know, Tesla already has to overcome that emotional fear that you're describing, where like, well, I don't want to die in a weird way. I'd rather have a, like a yes. nine times greater chance of dying. I, 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 <laughs> don't I, let me die in a weird way. I want my last <laughs> thoughts not to be, oh, God, the computer screwed up. I want it to be, oh, what an idiot I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think there's already market pressure to, to reduce, uh, you know, as low as possible, these types of crashes that make the news, right? And so I guess I would say for all those reasons, it's not surprising that regulators are being, you know, that there's consternation. And so regulators are acting, but it's the last place that they need to. Yeah. Well, it, fair enough. And look, he's a hate object now on the left and yes. for the government. Uh, and so he's just going to get this over and over again. And maybe it's not fair, but I, yeah, I but have go to Go pick say, on him for other reasons. Uh, exactly. You know, like SEC violations or something. Uh, well, go find it, some other reason. Uh, well, I, I was picking on him for his, his, his spectrum, <laughs> his location on the spectrum. But, all right. Uh, Maury, we haven't talked about China at all. And the New York Times is upset at... China for requiring now that on social media, when they post stuff, their location be identified. And I see how that is a mechanism for control because now people have another way of attacking you. But I'm just not sure I see this as a terrible authoritarian move. Am I, am I missing something here? I don't think so. I had the same reaction. I mean, if it were in the U.S., we'd say, well, this is a private company and they can display location information if they feel like it. And it's coming from IP addresses. As you say, I can see how in the Chinese environment, if somebody's posting from offshore, they find reasons to go after them on nationalistic grounds. But, you know, I think that's more testimony to the toxic social media environment that we see everywhere than it is to any horror in China. I mean, we in the U.S., now we learn prompted by Facebook, wanted to take down TikTok completely because it was associated with China. These games get played everywhere. I just don't see this as a scandal. So this is a theory I've never put forward before, and you'll probably see why when I put it forward. But one of the reasons, when people don't like your views on social media, they seize on whatever of your characteristics is salient to beat you with. So if you've got a picture, they tell you how ugly you are. If you have a location, they'll tell you you're from the wrong part of the country or you're a foreigner or you're a, a stooge for the Hong Kong dissenters. If you're a woman, they'll tell you that it's because you're a bitch. Uh, and if it's a man and, and you're bald, they'll tell you how ugly bald people are. And I just wonder if what happens here is everybody's most obvious characteristics uh, – become the focus of the abuse that people who don't like them focus on them. And this may actually account for a lot of the accusations that there's something uniquely sexist or uniquely racist about the social media platforms or the people who criticize some folks on social media. It's because they don't have enough data to, to, to make better insults. And so those are the insults you see. I'm just not sure they really reflect some deeper element where if people had 42 things to think about, I'm not sure they would be talking about people's location or maybe even their race or their gender. But that's my latest theory about why we keep hearing about certain kinds of abuse on the internet. It's an interesting theory. I mean, I, I think social media of the distance and you know and and it's somebody you don't know it's really easy to go toxic and so i mean you know yeah. okay the right wing thinks the big social media companies are too left wing and the left wing thinks there's too much right wing you know right wing views online i'm not so 
about the view balance as the just the toxicity that it breeds in our society and i think that's related to what you're to what you're yeah. saying Absolutely. Because when you reduce somebody to like three characteristics, they're going to feel just undervalued and disrespected. And the further discussion is going to be deeply unedifying and may not even reflect the views of the people who are engaging in it if they were in a different context. All right, let's move, just let's try to close this up because we've gone a little long. I'm sorry about that. Why don't you tell us what India is doing in the area of trying to make people responsible for their social media postings? It, it appears to be getting a bad reception in Silicon Valley. But again, I, I kind of said, okay, so what's wrong with this exactly? Well, it's pretty similar to laws that we've seen all over the world. India is one of the more regulatory countries in this area. They've said that VPNs and cloud service providers have to store various customer records for five years in order to be able to identify people later. And people who don't do it have to leave the country. I, I think it's not particularly remarkable. It's a, a control method along the lines of one that we've seen in many countries. It's KYC, really. It's the know your customer rules and not surprising that they would think that know your customer is a good principle. And we think it is in some circumstances uh, where there's a likelihood of abuse. So yeah, I, I think this is just, this probably tells us that Mahdi, the current uh, uh, prime minister of uh, India has a lot of enemies in you know the global equivalent of the New York Times editorial board. And so anything that his government does is going to be viewed with hostility and suspicion. All right. Uh, that ought to get us through this. So we went a little longer than I had hoped. But Jane, Mark, Maury, thanks for doing this. This was terrific. A great wide-ranging discussion. For our listeners, if you've got somebody who you think should be working on the podcast and you know, choosing better topics, we're in the market. Uh, we're looking for somebody who wants to do sound engineering, even if they don't know how to do it yet, and is interested in the topic. Send CVs and expressions of interest to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 408 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.